Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 44 of the Benzo Free Podcast. In today's podcast, we have part one of our wonderful conversation with Dr. Christy Huff. So I'm going to keep our intro a bit shorter, or (laughs) at least try. And don't forget, if you'd like to skip directly to the conversation with Dr. Huff, you can do so via our episode index at the top of our show notes. Right now, I'm actually on vacation. Well, not when I'm recording this, but I'm on vacation probably when you're listening to it. It's part work, part vacation. I, I do plan to record some along the way for the podcast, as I may have mentioned, and maybe even meet up with a few of you. But I'm recording this intro right now on Halloween, October 31st, so it might be a bit old. By the time it gets to you, I, I hope you don't mind. Normally, I try and record most of our episodes the day before I release them, but that doesn't work so well when you're not at home in your studio, so I needed to pre-record a couple in advance so there'd be content while I was gone. Dr. Huff was kind enough to let me record our conversation in late October and then wait to release it until mid-November. I'm, I'm really grateful for her flexibility. It, it made my trip possible. As I'm trying to get everything done before the trip, um, I've experienced a bit of stress, <laughs> and yes, you may know where this is going. I am in another wave. Welcome to the world of windows and waves. Yes, folks, this is so much fun. Most of you know that um, I'm over five years benzo-free, but I still get waves now and then, usually mild to moderate, but they do happen. I want to remind everyone that this is my experience. It probably won't be yours. You probably won't have things like this five years out. I'm in the small minority who experience long-term protracted withdrawal. Now, this recent wave is a bit stronger than they have been lately. And unfortunately, it brought back my insomnia. (laughs) As many of you know, that's not a very fun one. I had returned to six to seven hours of sleep a night most of the time. But for the past few weeks, I've been back around four. Last night, I woke at 2.30 a.m. and I've been up since then. Now, I know many of you have gone days without sleep as I did in acute. So, Four hours of sleep may sound really good to you, but I was hoping I'd be past this, you know, by now. Does does, does this frustrate, depress, and, well, just piss me off? Yeah, it does. Yes, I've found acceptance. I really have, which helps me a lot. And yes, I handle my waves much better than I used to. But, you know, every now and then, it really gets under my skin, and I have my own little private pity party. (laughs) I mean, it's been five freaking years. 
Sorry. I, I do try and be positive and hopeful as much as possible on this show, but every now and then I fail miserably. <laughs> as for the trigger of this wave, I, I don't really know. I think stress, anxiety, the usual suspects are probably at play here. That, that's the answer 90% of the time in my experience. The truth is, it, it makes sense. When I look at it analytically, there's a lot going on. My, my dog has cancer. My dad has Alzheimer's. My sister is on medical leave with back pain. I'm trying to get a million things done before heading out on a trip. My wife is overworked because it's her busy season, and just things are really crazy. Now, trust me, I, I know my life may seem mild compared to so many of yours, and I do understand that. But much like you, I don't handle stress as well as I used to, and it doesn't take much to trigger a setback. You know, enough of the woe is me tale. I'm, I'm sharing this with you because that's what I do on this podcast. We share our experiences with each other. And honestly, I think that's what binds us together and connects us. I hear your stories of your daily struggles throughout the week, and I am blessed that you trust me enough to share them with me. And equally so, I trust you to share my story with you. Thanks, thanks for listening to me. I, I know this wave will pass soon, usually about three days after I'm on vacation. Hmm, I, I think I'm seeing a pattern here. But I do appreciate you letting me bend your ear a bit and, and share my recent struggles with you. And now let's get on with the show. Today we have most of our normal format, most, which will include our introduction, mailbag, and feature. We will skip our Benzo story today since Dr. Huff will share her story with us in part one of her interview. Our feature today is Conversation with Dr. Christy Huff. This is part one of our two-part interview with the good doctor, and it's a good one. You're not going to want to miss this one, so please hang around for it. And, of course, before I move on, I would like to remind you that I need feedback. Questions, comments, stories, suggestions, corrections, additions, this is your podcast. And the more content I can share from you, the more benzo-free becomes a community it was designed to be. So please, tell me what you think. Visit our feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. I may not be very quick in responding while I'm on vacation, but I promise I will respond to every comment, every email I get. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And one last thing, the Benzofree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. If you're listening to the podcast on one of our providers, please leave feedback on that carrier. This does help new listeners find us. Okay, let's move on to our mailbag. Today we have two comments which both fit a similar topic. There's a, there's a thread here, so I thought I'd share them with you together. Our first comment is from Jan in Montana. Jan writes, Thought the intensity of the symptoms was behind me but they can still pop up anytime. Had to dig into my toolbox and remember how to cope and not become fearful. This is key for me in managing anxiety and intrusive thoughts. I have learned how to just sit with it and breathe. 
The other tool I want to mention is something I did in Acute. I can't remember how this occurred, but it did. I basically split into two people, the injured Jan and the old, healthy, strong Jan. Good old strong Jan talked me through months of terror and pain. I would speak, I guess it would be in the second person. It was like talking with my old self on the phone. Everything was, you are doing fine. These aren't your thoughts. Your brain is lying. You, you need to breathe. I would talk out loud all the time. My husband could not figure what the heck was up. Well, at least I am aware that I am talking to myself. Whatever works. Right, D? Thanks, Jan. When I read Jan's email, I asked her if I could share it here on the podcast because I thought it was a wonderful example of a coping skill that she developed on her own. And we all have to find those coping skills which work for us to help us manage our thoughts and our emotions. What Jan explained in her email, I believe, is similar to some common techniques many of us have used. Sitting with the emotion, sitting with the feeling, is one we've talked about many times on this podcast. And it's a good practice to try to embrace at times, to not block the feelings, not block the emotions. But also the self-talk, this exercise she developed, can also be helpful. We all experience self-talk, and that self-talk can be both constructive and at times destructive. But if we focus on the constructive or positive side of things, it can be quite effective. In an article from Psychology Today, the author Alice Boyce, Ph.D., stated the following about self-talk. When people think about positive self-talk, they typically think about affirmations and phrases to pump themselves up like, you got this. However, it can also be useful to construct self-talk to specifically counteract any patterns of self-sabotage you have. I believe this is what Jan is talking about here. It's a form of self-talk where it's being used to counteract the negative, distressing thoughts which try and take over. This is quite similar to some terminology I've used in the podcast in the past. I called it our rational brains versus our irrational brains. If we encourage our rational brains to counsel and even counteract our irrational brains, especially when our irrational brains are so out of control, as they can be in benzo withdrawal, it can help reduce the, well, for lack of a better word, crazy that we experience day in and day out. We do what we have to do, and if splitting yourself in two to talk to yourself helps you manage, then maybe it's the best thing for you. Then again, if you start talking to yourself too often, you might just want to speak with a professional, you know, in case you do start to believe there really is someone else in there with you. Thanks for the comment, Jan, and for allowing me to share it here. I think it was a great topic to discuss. Our second comment is from David in Japan, and I believe David's comment expands on the previous one. I'll be sharing David's story in an upcoming episode, but for now, I wanted to share this comment from him here. David writes, Hi D, just like to add that I feel pretty bad on waking, and I would recommend that anyone that is going through withdrawal to not linger in bed 
and let things fester. But to get up as soon as possible, get into some activity. I feel this helps exhaust the demon dreams that we sometimes have and the yucky, anxious feelings experienced. On another note, I try to be the observer when I get anxious feelings or sensations. It can be hard to do, but if you can step aside from yourself, it does help and symptoms do subside quicker. The worst thing is to try and stop what you are feeling. This only seems to make things worse. The saying, what you resist persists, is quite true. All the best, David. David and I have chatted a few times on email. He even sent me a picture of his home in the countryside in Japan. I replied with a picture of a hot air balloon landing in a field behind our house where we're in the path for hot air balloons most days during the summer here on the Front Range of Colorado, and they often get close enough for us to wave and even say hi to the people in the basket, but I digress. Um, <laughs> David has a lot of wisdom in his words, and that is why I wanted to share them here. First off, when those benzo mornings creep in and the ruminations start, it can be extremely difficult to motivate yourself to get up and, and get moving. But I agree with David to try. Get up and do something if you can. Lying in bed with your looping thoughts only makes things worse. Distraction can be a good thing in benzo withdrawal, and, and keeping busy can be key to a healthier and more supportive mindset. But keeping busy, getting up and moving, doesn't mean avoiding your feelings. When, when you get the bad feelings, suppressing them can lead you down the same rabbit hole, which may have led you here in the first place. Emotions need to be processed. I, I know it sounds counterintuitive, and it did to me too, but I found it's a wonderful practice once you get used to it. The best way, in my opinion, to process your emotions is to face them. Don't, don't resist them. Don't, don't be afraid of them. They're only feelings. Experience your feelings and let them pass naturally. Now, this is not an easy thing to do, especially if you have no practice at it, as I didn't before my withdrawal. But with practice, it can become an amazing tool for your toolkit. I believe that both David and Jan hit on a similar tool, which can truly help with benzo withdrawal. And that is a technique for pulling back and observing. Observe your thoughts. Observe your feelings and even experience them. And maybe create a bit of detachment between one side of you, the observer side, the rational side, and the other irrational side. In my opinion, if you can use the observer self, that rational self, to self-talk with the irrational self and talk her or him down a bit, then you have a little bit less chaos in your life. Then again, I am not a trained counselor. I am not a medical professional. So what do I know? This is all just my opinion. <laughs> Thanks for the comment, David. I hope all is well, and it's really great to hear from you. And that closes our mailbag. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback you'd like to share, please visit our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. And now, on to our feature.
Today, our feature topic is a conversation with Dr. Christy Huff. This is part one of our two-part conversation. Both parts were released on the same day as a doubleheader, so you don't have to wait to hear the entire conversation if you don't want to. I was first introduced to Dr. Huff on network TV. It was July of 2018. I was in the final stages of publishing my book. I was still struggling with protracted withdrawal at times and depressed at how little this story was covered on any significant media outlets. Even though I had stopped watching almost all news as a coping tool for my withdrawal, someone clued me in, so I turned on the show that night. It was NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt, and there it was. A cardiologist on a national news broadcast talking candidly about her dependence and withdrawal from Xanax. And warning of the dangers of long-term use. And that's the first time I saw Dr. Christy Huff. Even though it was a short segment in the news, and they didn't always use the terminology which many of us prefer, it was the nightly freaking news on a national network. Something I hadn't seen in the four years prior while I was researching my book. Many of you know Dr. Huff from her work with Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, where she is a member of the board for BIC. Let me share her bio with you here before we join the conversation so you know a little bit more about her. Christy Huff, MD, FACC, is a cardiologist who resides in Fort Worth, Texas. She attended medical school at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, where she graduated Alpha Omega Alpha in 2001. She completed an internal medicine residency at Washington University in St. Louis in 2004. Her cardiology training was completed at UT Southwestern in 2008 with a focus in advanced cardiovascular imaging and non-invasive cardiology. She was in private practice as a cardiologist in Fort Worth from 2008 to 2011, and following the birth of her child, she made the decision to become a stay-at-home mom. Dr. Huff is currently experiencing benzodiazepine withdrawal firsthand after she was prescribed Xanax for insomnia related to a major health crisis in 2015. After developing concerning symptoms and receiving no answers from her primary care doctor and a prominent neurologist, she began to research benzodiazepines and discovered her symptoms were consistent with benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome. With the help of a local psychiatrist, she slowly tapered off benzodiazepines using Valium over a three-year period. Christie's personal experience has led her to realize the dangers of these drugs and the severity of benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome, neither of which were emphasized during her medical training. She is an advocate of better education of physicians regarding the dangers of benzodiazepines and how to safely taper patients off these drugs and stronger regulation of the prescribing of benzodiazepines. I was able to correspond with Dr. Huff on email several times prior to our conversation for this show, and I had the pleasure of meeting with her in person for coffee when she was visiting in Denver a couple of months ago. We, we had a chance to talk and share notes from our experiences with benzos, and it felt to me 
a bit like two friends catching up. I truly feel privileged to have had the opportunity to get to know her. But enough of me talking. Let's hear from Dr. Huff. Well, hello, Dr. Huff, and welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Dee. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. I've listened to several of your interviews in the past, and I also read some of your blogs. And, of course, we've talked before a few different times. But one of the traditions on our podcast is, of course, to share your Benzo story, which I know you've done many times. It would be nice if maybe we could just go through a few questions and we can kind of cover kind of what you've gone through in the past, if that's okay. Sure, that sounds great. When, when did you first learn about your dependence? When did you first realize that you think you might be dependent on a benzo? And I think it was Xanax for you. Is that correct? Yes, it was Xanax. And I had only taken it for about a few weeks when I started to develop problems. And at first I didn't really know what was going on. I started to have some new symptoms, some anxiety and some tremor. Uh, And I think what really led me to figure it out that I was dependent is I was scheduled for a biofeedback session because I thought I was just, you know, treating anxiety. And I was asked to hold my dose of Xanax prior Mm -hmm. to the procedure. And I started to have full-blown withdrawal symptoms. Like what? I began to have um, all my muscles started to tighten up. I couldn't, Mm -hmm. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. My heart was pounding. I mean, it was, it was absolutely terrible. And then, and I was extremely anxious and scared. And as soon as I took a Xanax, all those symptoms went away. And so after that, I went online, I got on, uh, I Googled, I came upon Benzo Buddies okay. and uh, I saw everything that was going on there, you know, and it, all my symptoms just matched what all the other patients were experiencing. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to Benzo Buddies. That's where I first started finding my information right. too. I think it's a very common story. Right. I think it is. I had read that you not only were dealing with um, benzodiazepine withdrawal, but you also were managing a home and raising your child, and you were also battling with breast cancer at the same time. Is that correct? That's right. Um, Actually, the breast cancer diagnosis came a a little bit later, but I I was a stay-at-home mom at the time that um, I developed the problems with Xanax, and um, after that, I got transitioned on to Valium. Uh, to taper off. And I'd say about, so it was in August of 2015 when my problems started. Mm-hmm. And it, it was in April of 2016 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And at that point I was, you know, I was about a third of the way through my Valium taper Okay. when I was diagnosed. Oh, was that, what kind of complications did that add to your withdrawal? Did your withdrawal add to your cancer treatment? So, it prolonged my taper because I had to okay. stop tapering and hold right there so that I could get stabilized enough to undergo surgery. And after the surgery, I had to continue to hold my taper, you know, because until I had recovered well enough from surgery. And I had, I had two different surgeries um, over the course of that okay. fall. And it, so it prolonged my taper probably about by, by a good six months. Mm-hmm. And then of course, Going through breast cancer treatment is extremely scary. And, um, you know, I had to do that all while I was suffering withdrawal symptoms off of benzodiazepine. And I mean, that was extremely rough. I can't imagine that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have enough fear just from everyday right. little things, let alone try to deal with a, such, a, such a diagnosis as that. I know. I really don't know how I made it. I, I mean, it was just one of those like 
take it one day at a time. I'm just going to get through this, even the, you know, the next second. And somehow I I made it through. I, I would have to say that, you know, my daughter really kept me going. Just the thought that I needed to come back to her. I think that's great. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue. I was going to ask you, um, I'm, I actually don't have children myself, but I know with all the people I talk to, it's very common um, of the parental complications, you know, trying to raise a child at the, or raise a family and take care of all that at the same time of going through this. How, how did you manage manage that and how did you deal with that with, with your daughter? Yeah, so it was extremely difficult. And honestly, it it still is. I mean, I suffered a lot of guilt about thinking that I I wasn't a good parent because Mm -hmm. I was, I was too sick to be a parent. Um, but I finally just had to, you know, put that aside and say, Hey, this is counterproductive. You know, I'm, I'm doing my best to get well here and, um, doing my best to take care of her. You know, I had to hire somebody to help me. We had a nanny for a little while while she was, she was four when all this started. Oh yeah. Um, so she was in preschool and I, I needed somebody to help me drive. I couldn't drive, and, you know, and I didn't have the energy level to care for her, yeah. you know, through the entirety of the day. So I, I had to have help. Did you find, I know you mentioned you found um, Benzo Buddies. Was the action manual helpful for you? It definitely was. I used it as a guide to start. I, I read it all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it turned out that the Ashton manual, uh, her protocols were too fast for me. Okay. Uh, but I, I definitely use it as a guide. I think it's the best guide that we have at this, at this point. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. It's still the, I think the best out there as far as standards, but I do know you're right. A lot of people have to modify or adapt. Um, right. You know, I think um, we just released a two part series on tapering last month and discussed direct taper substitution, liquid titration, even micro tapering. And I think you were micro tapering. Is that correct? I was micro tapering, but I used a scale and okay. actually let me back up. Yeah. Please. I actually started out with the traditional cut and hold method. Okay. Uh, because I didn't, I didn't want to mess with the micro tapering at first. I was a little, little wary about it, scared. It seemed complicated. Um, so I first tried to, like I, I started on 15 milligrams of Valium and I made a one milligram reduction based on Ashton. And that cut was way too much. Yeah. I mean, it, it sent me into the pits of hell. So after that, I started reducing by 0.5 milligrams every, I think every three weeks. And that was working for a while. But when I hit around 7.5 milligrams, that's where those dose reductions got to be too big. And I tried 0.25 milligrams reduction. And, and finally, I just ended up getting a a lab grade scale from a friend. He was done with his taper. He had done well with that method. And so I said, Hey, I'll try this. And so I started, um, making micro reductions using a, a scale and a nail file. And that seemed to make, um, the, the rest of the taper was overall smoother. I, I still, there were still a lot of ups and downs. It was still extremely difficult, but it, it's, it smoothed things out. Definitely. And this was this was tapering off of diazepam at this time, right? So you had done a substitution. Yes, exactly. How did that go? How did that transition go between the Xanax and the and the diazepam? Yeah, so it took me, um, it took me a, I think about six weeks to get transitioned. And honestly, it was extremely helpful mm-hmm. because I was having terrible interdose withdrawal to oh, the point where okay. my Xanax would last two to three hours, and then it would wear off. And I would be 
I mean, I can swallow, breathe, you know, like I said before. And uh, so starting on the diazepam, took care of those peaks and valleys. And so I, it actually was a lot better for me. That's a, that's a perfect example because I know we, we talk about potency and, of course, half-life a lot on, you know, on the, on the tapering information on the show and how it's, how important it is that half-life is a big factor too, because for that exact same reason of interdose withdrawal on the more potent benzos and the ones with a shorter half-life like Xanax. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that worked for you and I'm glad you found a, a method and a, and a, you know, a pace that worked for you during your, during your taper. Now, are you now benzo free? I am. I'm oh, great. seven and a half months off. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So how are you feeling now that you're at that stage? Yeah. So I I won't lie. I still have a lot of symptoms and I still suffer windows and waves. I'm actually probably in a little bit of a wave right now because I've okay. had, I had a four hour long dental appointment the other day and it just set me off, oh, <laughs> you no. know, any, any amount of stress yeah. uh, can put you back into, into those waves. But but I, I'm definitely way better than I was at the end of my taper and the first couple of months off. That, those were extremely rough times. Okay. So I, I know I'm I'm overall better, but I'm I still fight a lot of symptoms. My energy level is still pretty low, and you know I still deal with some heart pounding and some tremors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you what was your what was your symptom list like? What 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 did you experience? Sure. So during the taper or um both. And that's a good question. Did they differ between the taper and post or were they similar? I would say it's overall, it's been pretty similar as far as the symptoms. It's just that as I've been off for a little while, the symptoms have toned down a bit. Mm-hmm. So they, but it's really the same, same symptoms. A few things have gone away. Um, you know, during my Valium taper, I had really bad stomach problems towards the beginning and that that went away towards the end of the taper Um, I suffered a lot of chemical terror when I woke up in the mornings and you know nowadays I I still have that feeling of being scared when I wake up in the morning but it's it's just not it's not as acute as it used to be I documented all of my symptoms on Twitter at one point, and I counted almost 80 symptoms. I mean, it it was pretty ridiculous that I suffered during my taper. Most of the time, I was suffering that symptom to some degree. Okay. It was just the the amount of intensity and whether I could function with it, if that makes sense. Sometimes the symptoms would all just, you know, come over me altogether, and it was... It was just too much, but... I understand. Yeah, one of the things I've run into in Protracted is... I don't always know if the symptom is gone or if it's the acceptance of us. And then sometimes if I think of it, I go, oh, like paresthesia, do I still have that? And I go, oh, yeah, there's still spiders on my face. I'm just not thinking about that. Did you experience that type of thing at all? Oh, definitely. I, I've definitely learned to live with a lot of symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get to the point where you just you still want to live your life and you want to go out and do things and you just have to to push through it a little bit. Now, I do know that at you know at certain points that that's just not even possible. But I mean, there were points in my taper where I was bedridden, couldn't do anything at all. So, oh yeah, I don't want to make it sound like oh you can just push yourself through no, and it's fine. No. There are days you have to, and other days you have to let yourself rest. And I mean, you you exactly. mentioned you mentioned the bedridden. So what what were those days like? What thoughts were going through your head? You mentioned the mornings and. 
we covered that a lot in this. We talked about benzo mornings, you know, and how that fear and everything hits you. What what hits you on one of those mornings? What was that like? Yeah, so you know, those mornings when I woke up like that, it was I mean, it was awful. The worst thing is I would were the mornings that I would have to get my daughter ready oh. for school mm-hmm. and the stress of that. I mean, I would literally just be crying and um screaming with just the, the agony of how bad that I felt that it, it's just so hard to explain like this lion was about to come eat me or I was chased by a bear. It was difficult. And it, I mean, towards the end of my taper, I, I could barely walk. I could barely stand. I was so dizzy. Um, and I, I, I would wake up sometimes with a cathesia in the morning where I just felt like I needed to, to move and pace um, you know, felt very agitated. Yeah, I know that one well. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I often would have in the evening, it, it seemed to always hit me in the evening, like I wanted to sit down and relax and read or watch TV with my wife, and I couldn't. And, you know, about, about 15 minutes in, I said, oh, got to go. And she said, you're going downstairs to play your drum set? I said, yep. <laughs> and that was my go-to. I would go down and play the drum set because that would work out the energy. And then I could come back up and we would go back to what we were doing. <laughs> right. That's good that you had that outlet. Yeah, you need some kind of, for me, I found that at least 30 minutes of exercise made a difference. You mm-hmm. know, it kind of process, I felt like it processed that, that energy and then I could go back to relaxing. But it was frustrating. Right. And I'm just now getting to the point where I can do some exercise, not okay. much. I've been in physical therapy for the last seven months, just okay. trying to get some of my strength back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so so you didn't exercise much during the, uh, the acute and through tapering? or I, I couldn't really. Okay. I mean, I, I had to do some physical therapy after my uh, cancer surgeries because mm-hmm. um, I was having a lot of tightness in my chest muscles. And yeah. so, you know, I did those therapy exercises, but I couldn't really do much as far as, you know, walking or riding a bike. It was just, it was extremely difficult. And if I did too much at all, then I would land myself in bed, just completely incapacitated with symptoms. And really I'm, I'm still that, that way where if I do too much, I'll land back in bed again. But the thing is I, I do a lot more now than I, I could during my taper you, you had mentioned like with the chest pains, I know I always attribute it to heart, but um, were you with, of course, with the breast cancer and everything else, did you have pain in your chest and were you, was sometimes that benzo and you didn't know and you attributed it to your surgery or your treatment? Was, was there confusion in there and fear created by that? Yeah, well, that one was pretty obvious to me because it okay. was, it was, what it was, was spasm in the chest wall muscles after okay. my mastectomy and breast reconstruction. And so it was pretty obvious what was happening. Like I didn't have that before the the surgery, but it, it was scary because it just, it wouldn't go away. It, it took a lot longer for me than I think the normal breast cancer patient. And I had to go to therapy to help relax gotcha. those muscles. And so, and I do think the, because normally my surgeon said she would prescribe Valium. Um, post-op for her patients. Of course. <laughs> it's like, I couldn't take any more Valium than my no. allotted dose. So she, she gave me some other muscle relaxer that didn't quite work as well. So okay. I was hunched over in pain for a little while there. Oh, so sorry. Yeah, that's so hard. I, I was often, I, I think I had about five EKGs during my withdrawal because I would have the costochondritis. Um, right. And with, with all that tightness of the chest muscles. And I also had um, um, acid reflux. 
And so I never knew what was causing right. the pain. And of course, then our fear kicks in with the anxiety and what do I wind up doing? I run to the ER and get yes. checked out again. Yes, I had the I had the acid reflux as well yeah. very early in my paper, and I ended up on protonics because it would not respond uh, to anything else. I tried antacids, HT yeah. HT blockers, nothing else. So I ended up on protonics, and I can tell you that I actually ended up um, weaning off of that after my taper was done. So that was all related to my. Um, to the benzos and and yeah like what you describe um i had some other episodes of chest pain that um were muscle related i actually pulled a muscle really severely in my ribs and i had to end up getting a cat scan and mm -hmm. you know it turned out to be nothing but it was it was scary it, it it was extremely painful like i i literally thought i had broken ribs somehow yeah exactly that's that's i felt too and i and i started to try to you know identify. It's like, okay, this pain is here. If I push on it, it does, re you know, and I would always, I learned ways of saying, okay, this is not hard. I know how to, you know, <laughs> right, but, right. It, but you go, you keep, I had a, I had a wonderful, um, uh, licensed practical nurse that is my doctor and she would just, you know, I'd come in and I said, you know, I want to get checked. She goes, no problem. I'll wire you up. I mean, she knew what I was going through and I know she tested me as an anxiety treatment for my withdrawal, but it helped, you know, it eased my mind. I could go back and realize, okay, it's not my heart again. <laughs> right. But we, we, we would do that. We've done that a few times now. And so it's nice, nice to have that, you know. Well, I always say it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. So it's, it's good that you went and got checked and, you know, I had to do the same thing a couple of times during my withdrawal. Yeah. It's, if, I mean, for a couple, one thing it's, it, it could be something else. There's always that factor. We're human and we can have other conditions outside of benzo withdrawal. But also, exactly. if you can ease that anxiety, that's also going to ease our other symptoms. Definitely. And so, you're right. Sometimes going to get to the doctor and getting checked out is the best thing to do, if nothing else, just to be able to let go of that worry for a while. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because I, I remember being terrified for a couple of weeks until I would get my testing and then figure out, okay, it's just the withdrawal. You're okay. And, and then it'd yeah. be like this breath of fresh air, like, okay, I'm I'm Okay. <laughs> Did you have any of the cognitive difficulties? I definitely did. And I still struggle with that. It's yeah. definitely not as bad. But I mean, I remember during my taper when I had just made a dose reduction that I'd forget how to do simple contact or mm. sorry, simple, simple tasks. Like, okay, how do you put in your contact lenses? Or <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'll give you another example. We bought an Instant Pot. Um while I was sick, so my could, my husband could learn to cook with it, and I was always terrified of it during my taper because oh, yeah. this thing, it looks like a, a spaceship. Okay? Yeah, we, and we, my wife these... got one about about a month ago, so I know what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm terrified of this thing, right? Because my, my brain's not working fully, and how am I going to mm. use it? And I finally am just at the point where yesterday we we got it out, and I'm like, Josh, you're going to teach me how to use this, and, and I can... I figured it out. I can do Good. it. So I'm pleased with that. That's funny. Yeah, I'm still, I have to admit, um, I think I've used it once. And, but when she first got it, I, um, I guess we've had it for about six months now, kind of think of it. But when she first got it, I walked out of the kitchen when she turned it on, you know, because I, I knew the pressure, you know, built in those things so intensely. And, right. and I was just, it's that, it's that irrational fear that we have sometimes, you know. 
I know. Yeah, I, I got to say, I did give it a wide berth yesterday because I was like, <laughs> okay, what if it blows? You know? So, exactly. yeah, I'm not I'm not completely rational yet, but it's <laughs> I'm getting there. You know, I am too. Now, you're you're a um, cardiologist in Texas or were until I think your daughter was born. Is that correct? And you took some time off? Yes, I took some time off in 2011 after she was born. I actually needed a knee surgery that was going to take a year to recover from. And um, after I recovered, I decided to that I wanted to spend time with my daughter. You know, you, that's time that you don't get back when they're young. Yeah, understand. Now, I, I read in your blog post on Vic that um, I think it was the blog post from March 14th of this year that it said that you were unprepared for what happened to you by your medical training. Could you elaborate on that a little bit and maybe what training you had and how that helped or didn't help you with your own experience? Sure. So I really didn't have much experience with benzodiazepines in my training at all. Um, it wasn't something that we prescribe very often, or if mm -hmm. we did, it was just in the hospital setting, like somebody's a little anxious and they get a one-off dose of Xanax or or they um, can't sleep and they get a one-time dose of Ambien. Okay. Um, so I was taught that they should only be used short-term, which meant no more than a couple of weeks and use them sparingly. And I was also taught that they could be addictive, which to me meant that, you know, if you're someone with a history of abusing medications, then right. you're, you're at risk for developing problems. Um, so that that's the extent of what I was taught. I was never taught about benzodiazepine withdrawal and how severe it could be or that these drugs could result in prolonged neurological damage. Um, none of that was covered. Yeah. So do you think that your experience as a physician may have helped or even possibly hindered your experience with withdrawal? I think it helped me in the sense that um, I had a medical background. So when I needed to figure out the symptomatology I was having and then I went to the online communities, um, I was able to, it, it made it easier, I think, for me to figure out what was going on with okay. me. Um, yeah. Because there's, you know, if you look in the online communities, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of good information and also bad information. That is true. And I think having that background just allowed it to be easier for me to sort through that information and figure out what was right and what was wrong. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, because you could differentiate some of the fact from fiction and and the hyperbole out there, which I know there's exactly. plenty, plenty of that available. I know. Um, you had mentioned the whole addiction thing, and I know let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I, I know... Of course, we all we all realize, and hopefully everybody listening to the show knows that it's physiological dependence that most of us are dealing with, that only exactly. a very, very small number are actually dealing with addiction with um, benzodiazepines. Did you, you mentioned that, see, I, I get, this is me finding a word, and this is my benzo brain kicking in. <laughs> I do that with the words too, this, yeah. I, I can't find the names of objects. So I, was try, I was trying to go back to what you said about addiction, and that you said that there might be a, a possibility of addiction and that you were only prescribing them short term in your, um, in your experience as a cardiologist for, you know, certain procedures and stuff. So when did you realize that this was more of a dependence issue and, and realize the difference and, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I realized it was a dependence issue when it happened to me. Okay. Uh, because I, 
I never took more than prescribed. I, in fact, I started out taking less than prescribed because uh, I was trying to be cautious with it. And I even, I developed problems within that short-term window of two to four weeks. It was three weeks when I started to have um, worsening symptoms. Okay. So, but yeah, I would, and then after just reading on the online support communities and talking to others that had also been harmed by taking their medications simply as prescribed, then I realized, hey, there, there's a big difference between right. addiction and dependence. And there is, and I know we, we get... We get caught up in that conversation sometimes, I know, within the Benzo community, and it's important for us to always make sure. I, I know BIC is very big on making sure that that is known, that, that this is a this is, there's a differentiation here, and we need to make sure this is clear. Um, yeah, so language is a big, big issue with this, because I think it, it ends up with patients being harmed, because um, yeah. if you consider everything to be addiction, and many of those patients are treated badly, or they're just sent to detox. Oh, God, yeah. Know, is not appropriate for benzodiazepine patients. So it, it can lead to all sorts of problems. It's it's not just the stigma. You know, people complain about the stigma of addiction, but it, it really goes beyond that. It's about the, the treatment of addiction and physiological dependence are very different. Yeah, I, I agree. And I've, I've talked to so many people who have, have unfortunately experienced rapid detox, usually at a center. Um, and I, I've yet to talk to one of them who said, yeah, that was the right way to go. <laughs> right. right. It's, a, it's a terrible experience. It is terrible. It's, it's a horrible. And, and also, it's just not appropriate either. Um, some of the people I've been chatting with mentioned the language. You know, the language is all geared towards addiction. And I've had some experience with family members um, with substance abuse issues in the past. And I, I know the language and, and how it works for those types of situations, but it doesn't work for us. We don't seem to have the cravings. You know, right. that that typical addiction has. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I I never experienced any cravings whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I took uh, Xanax and it, you know, it helped my symptoms of anxiety, which um, were really just withdrawal symptoms from Xanax before I knew what was going on. But I was, you know, I was just treating my symptoms. I wasn't like, oh, I really crave this drug. It makes me yeah. feel good. It was basically just keeping me out of withdrawal. And I, and I still never exceeded the, the dose, which I was prescribed. So it's, yeah, I never and did the Valium either. is even, I never even felt my Valium dose when I took it. You know, no. sometimes I would um, forget to take it for a little while. And, you know, it, it was literally just keeping me out of withdrawal. And I was just, that's the nice thing about Valium, that long half-life does come in handy. Sometimes. Right. right. <laughs> and I, I was just literally marching my way down with the dose, never took more Valium yeah. than, was prescribed. So, so yeah. yeah, there's a definite difference. I, I direct tapered off of clonazepam. So that was, and you know, there's a lot of things I would have done differently <laughs> if mm-hmm. I had gone back and I, I knew the Ashton manual, but I just didn't pay a lot of attention. My, my final jump I think was, um, was uh, 0.25, which of course is five milligrams of diazepam. So it was a big jump at the end and I just didn't know what I was doing. I thought, well, this is this small, I can cut the pill. So this is what I'm going to jump from. And Oh, wow. My, my first guest on the podcast was Elizabeth McCarthy, as I think you you know her. And she did, I think, a cold turkey off of like 10 milligrams of clonopin, if I remember correctly. It was something like that. I couldn't believe that she it was... It was a huge dose. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. believe that she was, you know, still here, you know, to be on the show and talk right. to us and tell us what happened. But it's also a great reminder to people that we can, you know, even people in the worst case of CT can survive. If you do things properly, you'll get through this you can recover. 
Right, right. I, I do have a lot of people coming to me saying, well, ICT, does that mean I'm doomed? It's like, no, it's, it might be a little more difficult, but there's so many things you can do to help the process and to make this go well for you now. Right. And it's so individual too, because, exactly. you know, two different people could CT and one could die and one experience severe symptoms, mm-hmm. but, but they're, they're sick for years and someone else is just experiences symptoms for a couple of weeks. They're fine. It's just sort of like Russian roulette. You don't know what you're going to get. Like I, mm-hmm. if I had stop my Xanax CT. I'm not sure that I would have survived. Who knows what would have happened? Yeah. If I'd done that for my, I was on two milligrams clonopin. And if I had done that at that point, yeah, I can't imagine, you know, you read about the seizure stories and the people who actually died through the extreme CT withdrawal and it's horrifying, you know, it's just horrifying. So yeah, that's why it's so important if people who haven't tapered yet to do it properly. And we're going to stop the interview right there for now. That closes out part one of our interview with Dr. Christy Huff. Please check out episode 45, now available for part two of this conversation. Thanks so much to Dr. Huff for taking her time to speak with us on the podcast. It has been a true pleasure. And now, before we move on to our moment of peace, please allow just 30 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. The way this works is that I will give a brief introduction, perhaps a suggestion of something to focus on. Then I will play a soft bell, which will indicate the start of the one minute. This will be followed by another soft bell, which will indicate the end of the one minute. And that will be the end of the episode. Feel free to continue to meditate if you choose. If not, continue on with your day. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place, where you can close your eyes Relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today we are going to use a type of noting meditation. In this meditation, we simply note the distractions that arise. You start with a simple breathing meditation and focus on your breath, while paying attention to any distractions that arise both internal or external. When you find that your mind has wandered, which it will do, note the distraction without any judgment and gently bring your attention back to your breath. This is an effective way to help train your mind to notice its distractions and learn how to focus. So let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in 
hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. Then let the breath out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally. And focus on your breath while paying attention to any distractions that may arise. If your mind wanders, note the thought and gently bring your focus back to your breath. Continue to do this for one minute. Our next episode is episode 45, the second part of this interview, and it was released along with the first part as a doubleheader. Thanks again for joining me today, and please, let me know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.